This is Family Office Intel at Dentons, the place where we discuss developments currently shaping the industry and actual ideas for advisors, executives, and families. We share uncommon knowledge from insiders for the Modern Family Office. I'm Edward Marshall, Global Head of the Family Office here at the firm. The following is a conversation with Gary Gartner. Gary is a member of the Denton's Tax Practice Group and is a global family office expert. He has extensive experience counseling families on U.S. and international tax consequences of various transactions, restructurings, and securities offerings. He also advises generally on strategic joint ventures, mergers and acquisitions, and a wide array of liquidity transactions. Gary uh, advises several family offices on all aspects of their global structures and investments. He's a founding member and managing director of Alchemy Capital Planning, a strategic affiliate of Denton's. He has practiced law in both in, in Canada and the United States. Gary's written and lectured extensively on various topics, including efficient structuring of business investments, cross-border tax issues, and financing and investment matters. Gary studied law at the University of Ottawa and has an LLM in tax from New York University. Today, we'll cover several interesting areas, including the evolution of the international tax base from the family office perspective. We'll also talk about some case studies from the field and how some of those complex international transactions and the best practices that families can implement from those particular opportunities that, that Gary worked on. So Gary, thank you for joining. Pleasure to be here. Tell us how you got your start in the family office space. I think it was uh, more fortuitous than anything else. I was uh, fortunate enough to be in a firm that had a broad array of very powerful dynastic families, uh, as well as companies they controlled, uh, some public, some private, that were involved in transactions all over the world and, and understood just how exciting that element of the practice could be and gravitated towards it. So in your practice, Gary, what, what, what's really changed in the international tax base in the last decade? And where do you think that we're headed to in the next four years? Interestingly, over the years, uh, over the last decade, I would say, uh, many of these, and I call them dynastic families, are far more peripatetic. You, you find them in perhaps half a dozen different countries. And they're almost today's conglomerates. They're becoming so large, so powerful, uh, and their investment base is so broad uh, that it is like being involved in some of the some of that some of those great old conglomerates of the 1960s and 1970s that we dealt with. And so, because they're becoming so significant, they need far more support in so many more areas than they they did in the past. And I think that's been probably the most significant evolution of the last 10 to 15 years. And then putting your uh, your vision towards the future, where, where do you think we're headed to in the next couple uh, next couple of years? I, I think that there's been um, a change as well in their focus. Many of the families, uh, because they could not uh, hire the proper level of support internally to analyze uh, analyze structures and investments, uh, relied very heavily on fund investment. Uh, what I've seen over the last few years, and I believe is a trend that will continue, is that these families will begin to create their own clubs and will begin to play together and use the expertise one has 
uh, in order to to scale an investment. And so I think that uh, the the concept of family created partnerships will proliferate. So what do those clubs look like? Well, it's uh, they're they're a bit free form. Some of them look awfully like uh, awfully like. Uh, investment funds, uh, where there are fees that go back and forth. Some are without fees um, because they understand that there's a quid pro quo to the extent that you invest in this in this area because I'm I'm I have specific expertise. Perhaps the next deal where your family has specific expertise in another area, I will invest and help scale the investment as well. So uh, you're almost keeping an informal ledger as to as to what one is doing for the other. Um, so it goes from one end to the other. From that, I mean, that's really the spectrum, and I've seen them fall uh, fall within that. But but there's so many that are evolving now that I think in the next four to five years we're going to see um, we're going to see a, a, a change uh, and uh, an evolution of these kinds of structures. Is that uh, evolution part of why family offices are have this interest? I wouldn't say necessarily that they're that there's a large amount of activity, depending on what groups of family offices you're talking about, but certainly a level of interest in direct investing without any kind of a committed capital structure. I, I think that's exactly uh, what they're, they have in mind. They love the soft commitment. They love the ability to look at things. They have a, a they have the ability to vet investments more than they ever had in the past um, through internal sources and external sources. And so absolutely, I think that the, the, the club is, is part of the desire to direct, make direct investments. So they have that, that freedom. Uh, so they're not committed to blind pools as they were in the past. Gary, let's, uh, let's talk about some cases from the field. You know, you certainly have been doing this for a number of years for a number of families, both in North America and and families that have glo- a global footprint, let alone uh, you know two, and I think that's an interesting perspective because we often talk about the globality of family offices and global family offices as a subcategory within this space, but it, it's rare to find someone like yourself. Uh, that's dealt with so many of these issues over the years and 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 put to it. So I'd love if it's possible uh, for you to give us some of those insights based on your experience working with them because I think, as we talked about before, there's some in, there's some good best practices that I think you can draw from your experiences, even to dating back to what 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 technology and other things have evolved over over the years. And I think, you know, maybe we could start with some of them, you know, some of the earlier work that you did in this space. And I know some of it revolves around satellite telephones. Yeah, well, it was quite interesting. And I think even before we get into the specific case study, um, what's exciting is that that sometimes with your clients, they're dynamic, they're energetic, they're imaginative, and you're following in their wake. And sometimes you're bringing them ideas that you're working with together. And I, I always, I, I liken it to ballroom dancing. Sometimes you're leading, sometimes they're leading. And I think that that's, that really makes for the real relationship. Sometimes they expect you to initiate. They expect you not to answer a question, but to raise a question. And I think that that 
almost Socratic method is quite important with a family. You have to be prepared to do that. And that's something that I've always aspired to. Uh, so that's, I think that's at the foundation of representing anybody. And I found that the families who are really the, the vanguard of many technological investments are quite interesting to deal with because you have to keep up with them. Um, and, and so one of the original uh, transactions I was involved in uh, was something I barely understood, and that was satellite radio. Uh, to me, it was, I had looked at those old war movies where they pulled out those big clunky things that looked like walkie-talkies uh, and tried to communicate with their with their head office. Uh, and, and, and they were a form of satellite communications. And uh, a couple of companies at the time, Global Star and Iridium, had taken low Earth orbit technology uh, and try to market it. And the military was probably the primary user of those. And this one family, uh, a Canadian family, uh, in partnership with uh, a technology company out of California, developed a, uh, a mid-range Earth orbit technology where the satellites, you need fewer satellites because if you have a low satellite, you have mountains and buildings in the middle. If you have a, a mid-level satellite, then you have fewer. So it, it was a lot less costly. But of course, we nevertheless had to raise billions of dollars to launch our satellites. Um, and what was fascinating is the, the tax aspects of this. They would ask me, so Gary, uh, how are we going to structure this and how are we going to maximize our profits? And I, you know, I gave them a bit of a blank stare and, and uh, you know, called up the IRS and say, you know, there's nothing in the Internal Revenue Code that deals with this. This is space income. And they said, thank God you're calling because we're just, we're just having a meeting on this and perhaps we could work together to come up with what the proper structure and way in which we should be taxing the space income is. So we were, we were at, the, at the cutting edge of, of discussing how uh, income derived from space activity should be taxed, which was quite fascinating. And then there was the, the element of we had partners from, I believe it was half a dozen countries involved in it because the numbers were so significant in a private transaction. Um, Ultimately, cellular phones destroyed us. So these three companies probably vaporized $18 billion in the 90s uh, trying to develop an industry that never existed. But getting to that point and understanding what the families who were at the cutting edge and who, who felt that they, they wanted to invest in this because they thought it was going to change the world, uh, it was, it was a, a kind of a, a, wonderful, uh, a wonderful experience for me. And, and, you know, as we're going into satellites, my second foray into satellites was far more successful, where uh, a family I, I continue to represent uh, called me over a weekend. Uh, and, and this man is, this, he's got an insatiable appetite for technology. I mean, there isn't a weekend that goes by that I don't get an article from him on some uh, way out technology that he's, he's taking a look at or wanting to invest in. Uh, and yes, he has he has uh, uh, invested in a few duds, but this weekend was was uh, was quite interesting because he said he just met a guy who's got a wonderful idea, and it's called satellite radio. And I, and I said, well, I mean, there's the internet that's around, and this was in your 90s. I said, the internet. Do you think internet's going to supplant? He says, no, no. I think this is I think this is a winner. Uh, and there was a, a was genius attorney. Um, an FCC attorney who would come up with the idea and develop some of the patents. Uh, and he was working with another gentleman who was a financier. And the financier had approached uh, uh, our family 
Uh, and so he said, you know, Gary, why don't we incorporate this company, merge into them, and I think we could take a large position in them. And why don't you figure out how to structure this? Once again, it was, you know, the open-ended assignment. Uh, so we ended up structuring it in a very kind of interesting way because, the, again, the income was quite odd. It wasn't clear what our income stream was, how we were going to charge people, how we were going to make money out of this satellite radio. Um, uh, needless to say, it's, it did pretty well. We launched our first satellite. Uh, and then we changed our name to Sirius Satellite, uh, merged with XM, and now we're we're XM Radio, and uh, it's been quite it's been qu it was quite a run. We now we we bailed out relatively early on uh, in the life uh, to, to you know a very good return, but the the emergence of the technology, the adoption of the technology, uh, was was really was wonderful, and meeting the people who. This this was their life. They they lived, ate, and, and breathed satellite radio, and they they were certain that it was going to beat out the internet radio, especially in automobiles. And for they were focused on long haul truckers, which was fascinating. And and our family, to, to their credit, really saw this and and stood behind them with their checkbook. So how did things evolve with the family or whatever family office structure they had over that investment period? I imagine there were some ups and downs and you know expansions with elements that you mentioned but how how did that interplay work and and are, were there some good things that you saw there that you would potentially recommend other families follow uh, in terms of uh, good practices absolutely it's 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 interesting that you mentioned that because i was having a conversation the other day uh, about the proper internal vetting process this one family i i was involved with uh, they were investment cowboys they're, they didn't see an interesting idea they didn't like, and they, they started throwing things against the wall and hoping something stuck, which was really not the best way to go. Uh, it's like it's like effectively going to the racetrack and betting all across the board number five uh, without analyzing anything. And, and, and I think that's was inappropriate, and I think the rest of the family didn't appreciate that. Uh, but that was a situation where the patriarch... Uh, had no humility. <laughs> he believed that he was the only person in the family with any kind of judgment um, and also believed that uh, he wasn't going to involve anybody else. So it was a very strange structure. He did particularly well, but never created the infrastructure that, that we advise in, in, in the classic family office that creates a kind of a dynastic family that passes this on um, to other generations to build a strong internal infrastructure, he, you know, he preferred not to have that approach. Whereas others have uh, have built very strong support groups um, internally and externally, and have been involved and have have understood what it was to to have a structure that was both malleable yet yet something that they could depend upon that that wasn't uh, ad hoc. So many families, unfortunately, take an ad hoc approach, especially when it's first generation. Um, it's really difficult for the first generation entrepreneurs to create these family offices because they they, they see it as kind of, an, uh, it's really an entre entrepreneurial foray. It's not the creation of an entity, whereas I've represented some family. I do represent some families who are second and third generation who understand that it, that's all that it's about. It's about it's about maintaining 
the family, maintaining an understanding of what the family's heritage is. Uh, yes, the business is very important, but who they are in the community is important. Their, their uh, uh, charitable side is almost as important as their business side. And they, they live by the front page of the Wall Street Journal test. They do nothing. Uh, that that would embarrass them if it were on the front page of the Wall Street Journal, which to me is a very interesting. It's been an interesting approach. So they they're very focused. They're very detail oriented. They involve every uh, every generation as early as possible. Very much into education. Uh, very formalistic. Have a family constitution, um, which more and more families are doing. Understanding that. It's it's a you not only have an a, a, the assets of the family you have the responsibility to be a member of the family, and I think that that approach is 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 quite important, and and that's something that I've seen that that more families are adopting that concept that you th there is there is a burden to be one of us and you have to accept that burden uh, and 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 discharge your duties and obligations which so many families do not do not adhere to. What if there's family members that don't want to discharge those duties and don't want, despite all best efforts, to include them as part of the family using the governance mechanisms that you've talked about and, 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 and certainly building a communication structure and all these things that often you'll hear from a, a textbook answer but family offices don't really come out of a textbook and families don't come out of a textbook for certain. And I think that I would be interested in your thoughts of when you do have those types of situations what are some what are some ways to to work around them or work through them i think i think you you hit on it uh, you alluded to it earlier and that is communication and clarity uh, i think if everybody understands what is expected what the family represents uh and what the family has gone through um I think that it's easier to explain to members of the family if they do not want to take those responsibilities that they are in another column. And and that column, I mean, it's not as though we're putting them into the hinterland, uh, but they're in a different position. Those willing to take stewardship roles uh, enjoy it to some degree, but they're accepting that burden. Those who were... You know, there are those who are the coupon clippers in a family, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, perhaps they're not interested in the business. Perhaps they're interested in another pursuit. And and that's, I think, what is encouraged in the ones, the families that I believe are successful. Uh, they are they encourage their progeny to go off and do something well. Um, and it might not be the business. It might be something else. But that level of encouragement is important because the last thing you want is uh, a kind of a malcontent going through the motions in a family. So I think communicating what's expected and then similarly, the, 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 the new generations communicating back clearly. This is what I want. This is what I want out of life. Un even understanding what this opportunity is, I believe that I can do better following this path. And and you have people in the family who who educate them on their financial position, understands what it means, but also explain to them that yes, if you want to make that 
personal investment in something else, we're all for it. Because in the end, we want family harmony. We don't want a bunch of people backbiting each other. That's great, Gary. I think you made some fantastic points there of, of how uh, to look at uh, those different areas and how they can fit into a structure to, to, you know, to succeed. And, and, and defining that success in and of itself can be a difficult one. How have you talked and worked with families around defining success and, and starting with the end in mind? Is that something that comes up with the family businesses and family offices that you work with? It, it comes up all the time. Uh, you know, and I've had, I've had a conversation recently. And I think at the core of it is what makes anybody successful in business or in relationships, and that is understanding that what you do is relationship-driven, not transactionally driven. Um, many entrepreneurs never make that transition, never understood that, yes, these transactions have put me in a specific place, but now my relationships will solidify that, make me better, make me stronger, make our family stronger and more successful. They continue on a transactional basis, even a transactional basis with their kids. Um, and I think that's an enormous problem for many families. You've got entrepreneurial entrepreneurs at the head of these families who don't understand that transition. Um, and you have to work with them to understand it because even for us to be successful representing families, we have to understand that it's it's the calls in three of the, at three in the morning. It's working with people through their problems and successes uh, where you develop that, that kinship and relationship. To me, there are some families where uh, you know the batter's box has been erased a little bit. I feel as much as a family member as some of the other people, which to me is that's the ultimate success both ways. They make you feel that way and you've earned that element of trust. And it's all about trust. I mean, it's all about trust. And and I think the families, though, have to have to really. It, it takes it takes quite a person to have the humility to say, "I'm in this position. I understand I'm in a position. It's a combination of my brilliance, good timing, good fortune, um, and I understand that I'm not going to be an idol." in front of my next generation, I'm going to be uh, a partner uh, and and I'm going to respect them. So it's kind of a mutual respect. Those are the kind of things that are really difficult difficult to, 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 um, uh, to get somebody to realize. I think all of us uh, start believing our own propaganda to some degree. And I think for us to not, for us to help them understand that they are not the sum of their press releases, I think uh, move some of these families to greater success because so many of them in the public eye for so long uh, they they fail to do that but the one successful there's one family who is who is so humble uh, and could be so arrogant um, and and that element of their life is is actually the one of the most important to ingrain that humility in all levels of in all the generations um, it's 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 wonderful to see and I think that but every family reaches their own, you know, has has a right level. But I think that those are those are some of the elements that, that in my mind, make for a successful, a successful family structure. 
So let's dive back into some of the examples of the case studies yeah. uh, for the families that you, you've worked in, because I think there's some good nuggets that, of insights that we could pull out of those as well. We talked about satellites. Let's talk about pulse power. So that's a, a very interesting one. And this is one that speaks to longevity and focus. Um, two entrepreneurs got together. One, uh, probably one of the most well-respected physicists in the world, and clearly in France, perhaps one of the youngest recipients of the Légion d'honneur in France, which is the kind of high, highest order of merit, both military or civil, civilian, came out, came up with a method by which uh, you can take regular power, low levels of power, like a household current, compress it and release it into gigawatt level power surges uh, over a short period of time, which is quite amazing. Um, and it took one of the families I represent very closely to appreciate that, understand that, and create a structure uh, that commercialized it and it's taken us years it's taken us a decade to move towards that and we're only now realizing it but the family structure I think helped uh, in in developing that and I think that kind of the the ability and the the patience that the, the family had uh, letting the entrepreneurs run sometimes to a fault uh, I think aided in that structure so it's it's a um, it's it's long-term money. Um, I know people say that, but but the concept of the five to seven year plan is another reason why some families are are not looking to these committed funds because they don't believe that five to seven years, especially in some industries, works very well, and it has to be longer longer uh, uh, longer dated. In fact, I'm having a meeting tomorrow morning with some very prominent families that we would all uh, we would all uh, know. Uh, European families who are discussing uh, an industry, an industry play among you know four or five families around the world that will probably have a ten to twelve year time horizon, uh, which is very unusual in the context of investments. So I think that I think that that that's to me is an is an important aspect aspect of it, which really made that that Pulse Power project quite successful, and we're now reaping the benefits of it. Um, I think that that. To me, that was that that kind of vision and farsightedness. You don't see that often. You really see people. It's it's the uh, antithesis of the how did you do last quarter and how was our stock trading. This is how are we going to do in five to ten years, uh, which was which is actually quite fascinating and and and, and, and amazed me. And ama that level of commitment uh, always uh, always was something I was envious. And that was something they imparted in next generations. That it's it's it, this is not a quick fix. This is not something that happens quickly. Which which I think is also something that has to be remembered. A portion of your allocation, a portion of your life, uh, is longer term. Uh, and I think it comports with the attitude that a family is long term. It's not a short term. It's not transactional at all. It goes back to the you know long term relationships. What if you have a conflict between the long term goal and a short term need? Right, I think some of that we we talk about patient capital, we talk about time agnostic capital, and all these different elements. But sometimes there's just needs for cash, some from liquidity and other things of of that nature, and that conflict be, between those uh, elements for a family. You know that we try to say in the perfect, 
where in the ideal, we could aim towards having a flexible time horizon. But what if flexibility calls for a family office to have some liquidity? They don't have some of the options that other companies might have, or sometimes they do. But what have you seen that's worked in, in that space? Well, I think th- that puts the great pressure on the on on that the allocation of your assets and resources. Um, uh, I mean, you and I were involved in a in a perfect example of that, where we were focused on. I was focused on uh, what one allocator of assets was indicating. Um, you looked at it and said, "Well, maybe there's another view to this." And perhaps we should look at it and look at another source, which we did and went along with it. So I think that 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 to and fro and discussion about what is our proper allocation short to long to medium term is super important. And that also factored in there is exactly what your business is doing, because your business is necessarily throwing on cash off cash flow. If you if you have not disposed of it and have liquidity of it, that's obviously a very different situation. But to the extent you still have your core business functioning, then you don't have as much freedom because you're potentially illiquid. So you have uh, and there's a family I deal with as well who who, what they did, which is fascinating, in order to imbue their next generation with that knowledge and that understanding of investment, is they created their own internal venture capital private equity fund with the children involved with outside experts and and looking to small ticket investments just to make sure they understand what that is, looking to the one day when the company will have that significant liquidity event and there will be massive resources to invest. So I think it's it's family specific where are you on the value chain have you are you in your business which has huge requirements of capital is it throwing off significant capital cash flow um what what are the needs of the family how big is your family i mean some of these families who are multi-generational uh start allocating out and it's not it's not that much and you know some grandchild or great-grandchild uh hears what his trust allocation is they go oh my lord i have to work uh, and but that's education. At a young age, you have to explain to them, uh, yes, you have a great birthright, you've got a great name, but guess what? We're going to force you to, <laughs> you're going to have to work and 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 work for yourself and create value. Uh, but yes, families have. I think it depends again where they are in the continuum. Uh, have they developed? Have they had their liquidity event? And then getting the right people, the right professionals to help them on that allocation is is essential. But there has to be some balance, right? I think the the venture capital idea that you mentioned within the family office is a really interesting concept. I assume that in that particular case, and please do correct me if I'm if I'm mistaken, but that's an educational tool. I don't think the family is expecting that everybody will suddenly become a genius investor. I think one of the areas that I one of my favorite quotes uh, from a family office was it took us several generations to realize we just didn't give birth to private equity principals and uh, experts. And it seems like that might be a good training ground and maybe a good proving ground, but not necessarily conflating training with the long-term desires of people, which could be completely separate from the family business or the family office. Exactly. In fact, I mean, that is exactly what the point of this is. Uh, And in fact, one or two of them uh, first went out and worked for organizations and companies and funds that were involved in the sector, writing much bigger tickets, came back and, and, and used those used those cues that they learned in that environment to help the family. Uh, but understanding that it's, this is just going to get them 
deeper and allow them to become decision makers. Uh, it's so hard to make the decision and own it within a family. Um, you end up create. You don't want to create generations of followers. Uh, you want to create some leaders in the family, and that I think that's what helps. And that's what that's what the the patriarch decided was the best way to do. He he wanted decision makers, and I think that's. Uh, and it depends upon the type of person it is, the matriarch or patriarch, who, who, um, what they want to create and craft. Um, it just doesn't happen by accident. It takes a lot of work. Um, and, and, and this one family did exactly as you suggest. They want to educate and they want to create a next generation of decision makers. It's sort of giving them the tools for success for the next next time around. Exactly. Another example in a family that uh, that we've talked about is, is really around the EV revolution, electric vehicle revolution. What what are some good lessons learned from that particular family of how they've put uh, put put their best foot forward of building a, a successful enterprise? Um, I, what's what's interesting and what I've learned from them is uh, this family and and. Um, they have they understand what they don't know and uh the one lesson that i've learned watching them in this transaction this latest transaction uh has been uh you can never hire uh experts who are good enough find the best your due diligence uh is not just looking at um somebody's proof of concept uh, and defining the, you know, defining what the market is, it is really drilling down in the technology, hiring top-level scientists from around the world to help vet it with you, uh, and and it was just fascinating to me, uh, and the level of understanding that they wanted to achieve, they weren't going to be mesmerized by. Uh, what everybody was thinking. There's a real herd mentality in the context of some of these new technologies, like EV, um, uh, battery technology, uh, and so. But but to to step back and and really analyze what these things all mean uh, has been has been a, an education for me at least. So I think it's it's uh, very surgical, very detailed, um, and not accepting what is just common knowledge, common wisdom uh, right now, which is, I think, really very important because there is a lot of kind of herd mentality going on and people are going to make some some big bets uh, that will not pan out uh, in this area. And this family, interestingly, understands uh, understands uh, the, the entire value chain of the EV world and not only as educated uh, in the context of uh, downstream technologies, but understands the upstream components that go into those technologies, uh, and is you know probably one of the most well versed in the types of uh, of metals and minerals that are required to to support the EV world, and and that's an important that's an important equation that most people don't focus on. You can't make batteries without nickel, lithium cobalt <laughs> and uh, where's our supply of that and where are we going to get that and how are we going to do that uh helping our earth not degrade so i think you make an interesting point around knowing what you don't know it also ties into 
the future of different technologies that are coming out, right? It's it's very challenging to keep up with everything. And I'm sure you get peppered with questions from families that are coming up with a new technology. They're moving in a new space where, you know, you have your expertise as a international tax lawyer and a tax expert and business uh, business lawyer and, and, and transactional support element to these families. Where... What what happens when it's completely off the wall? Something brand new, artificial intelligence or artificial reality or cryptocurrency, blockchain, NFTs. Where does that fit into your process? Because if I hear something common through the discussion today, it's you're not just becoming a trusted advisor. You're not just a a lawyer and a legal mind to these family offices. You're taking on a, a business mentality of learning about their business so you can be as effective as an advisor as you can in that ecosystem. What happens when it's completely brand new? I think what you do is, as as this one family taught me, is you, you get as much knowledge as you can in an area um, and start asking as many questions as possible because the one fault that most people have is uh, they don't want to appear stupid, um, and being stupid, being the dumbest guy in the room, has some great advantages because you can just see back, keep asking questions. And I think that's one thing. As I've gotten a bit longer in the tooth, I'm not embarrassed asking the dumbest questions in the room. And typically, uh, half the room had the same question; they just too embarrassed to ask it. So I think that that's what you end up doing. You end up analyzing it to death. From first principles, you take everything, at least I do, take everything to first principles and don't assume incremental knowledge because I don't have any incremental knowledge in the area. And, and you know, you and I were involved in something very similar to this recently with the, the, the family who was involved in the, in the, in the non-fungible tokens. Um, and we looked at each other and said, non-fungible tokens, I mean, is that for the subway? Uh, and then realized that, you know, this is, these are, these are, you know, you know, digital assets where you know they're they're you know, kind of on blockchain, so that they're you you can view them and they they certify that they're unique. And it was quite interesting. And this this one family uh, was super advanced and, and knowledgeable in this area. And we had to you know get up to snuff and understand it, um, understand it as an asset class. Which is if you're looking around, more and more people are accepting it as an asset class. So it, it was a perfect example that you and I went through. And technology isn't stable, right? There's going to what is new today will be uh, something old five years from now or five months from now. Right. I think you make some good points in terms of staying on top of what's there, but also having good resources that you can pull from both inside, in the house, and outside the organization to, to really do that. And I think you're, you're, you're definitely a good example of being creative about getting up to speed and knowing what what's uh, what's there? Because I think if you just look at it, it can be daunting, right? To go from zero to uh, whatever level of knowledge is, is needed for something like that. And certainly with your clients that are very dynamic and very entrepreneurial, as you talked about in the beginning of our conversation today, it's sometimes you're leading, sometimes you're following, and there is that dance that comes out of it. But it's it's very interesting to hear your experiences today. Yeah. And 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 what's it, it and you and you and and really in some, 
to be a successful in this area, you're you're more of a conductor than a first violinist. Um, I think you have to understand that there's a part to play uh, throughout the orchestra, and and you have to go find those right people. and And part of it is understanding what you do not know, uh, and and bringing those right people together, be it within your own firm or externally. Uh, and I think that's what's that's what's the most important element of success in my mind. To, to admit that and understand that you have to bring components in, not only from a subject matter perspective, but geographically, understanding that the, 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 the central analysis of these three countries is absolutely vital to coming to a conclusion. And if you're making a, a presupposition that what happens in, in the Ukraine is the same as what's going to happen in, in uh, the Congo, you're making a big mistake. And I think that so many people do that, and especially with a little bit of arrogance, colonial arrogance, that you assume that the, everybody's sensibilities are exactly the same, which they absolutely are not. Gary, top, uh, top lesson learned for you. What do you wish you had known back then that you know cold today? Don't be in a rush. You've got plenty of time. I think that's the key. I think that uh, as, a, as, a, as a younger attorney advisor, you're in a everything your hair's on fire uh you think that being quick is being smart is being effective uh, and not that's not necessarily the case being complete thoughtful uh is i think more respected and, and more important thanks gary and thanks to all of you for listening in today if you'd like to get in touch with gary or you have any questions you can drop him an email at gary.gardner at dentons.com or Reach out to us at familyoffice at dentons.com and we'll put you in touch. If you enjoyed today's conversation or so inclined, uh, subscribe to the channel, review us on Apple Podcasts, follow us on Spotify, or keep in touch with us wherever you prefer to listen to podcasts. As always, sharing this episode is very much appreciated and probably the best way that you can show your support. Sign up for our newsletters, learn about our family office solutions and research in the family office space check out our website that is dentons.com forward slash family office. Well, that's it. Bye everyone.